Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about wellbeing, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in doctors' wellbeing. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on wellbeing, which is critically important for healthcare professionals during this pandemic. Today we'll be talking about what lessons can be learned from the pandemic in relation to staff wellbeing. Well, we are delighted to have on the podcast today someone who is speaking about this at the International Conference on Physician Health. Uh, please, could you introduce yourself? So I'm Subodh, um, Subodh Dave. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and um, I have an interest in person-centred care and humanising medicine. Um, and as part of that, uh, the compassionate care that we provide as doctors, I think compassion for ourselves, I think, is an important element of that. Um, So I've been involved with um, Doctors in Distress, the charity, but also I'm the Dean-Elect of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And in that role, I've been um, um, involved in in initiatives that help doctors. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I love that humanising medicine. I think that's really critical. So Sibod, I think the first thing we wanted to ask you about is, do you think um, there have been lessons that we can learn from the pandemic in terms of uh, staff well-being? I think so. Um, I think it has been quite a sobering experience for all of us, I mean, for all of all of humanity, really. I think, mm-hmm. um, and um, what's happening now in India is just a reminder that we're not out of it at all, um, and in Brazil. Uh, so there are parts of the world where COVID still rages on, and I think uh, we can't let our guard down. Um, I think for many of us working in the healthcare profession, it's been a it's been a strange time. I think in some ways we were spared the the complete isolation that many of our uh, you know fellow uh, people have have had to endure. Uh, so I could go to work and then you know interact with colleagues and patients, which was I think you know I feel really grateful for that. But equally, losing colleagues um, to COVID was, uh, you know, quite de- devastating, really. I think, and, and most people I know have suffered personal losses through this. So, working through your grief and and continue to work has been a, has been a challenging experience for many. But I think um, there's silver linings to every cloud, and yeah, to each cloud, you know. I think I think the silver lining in this, I think, has been. For me, I think a, a real wake-up call f- for us as a profession that um, that looking after ourselves is quite important. For the first time, you know, I've, I've been a psychiatrist for a long, long time, and it's always been a challenge trying to get your message across to 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 your wider fraternity. You know, so I think I work in an acute hospital. I'm a I'm a liaison psychiatrist, and and part of your role is always trying to get the importance of mental health across to your acute care colleagues, and. Last year, I think I had many acute colleagues approach me, asking me to organize something for them, saying that, look, we're all feeling very, very stressed. This is really getting us down. So I feel that um, there's been a real awareness that uh, that 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 we need to look after our, our well-being. But also, I think, an awareness that, that uh, something can be done about it. I think a lot of the times what stops us from taking that first step is the feeling that, well, I'm in a situation that nothing can be done and I think COVID is a real example of that the feeling that it's all so overwhelming so all enveloping that there's nothing that we can do about it I think that it's easy to become feel powerless and helpless and I think so I guess for me the the main lesson I think from 
the times of COVID is that uh, there's hope, you know, I think, and, and, and if we work together, there, there are ways of, of, I mean, we are amazing, you know, in some ways that look at the way the world has changed and, and yet we've adapted to it, you know, and that we need to, we need to feel good about it. Were there any examples of, of, of good practice that you saw during the pandemic that you'd like to continue? I'm thinking of, I think we saw kind of spaces opening up for staff to rest and food provided at night. Are, are there any things like that that you like would like to see continue? So, yeah, I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was um, quite a, you know, change, right? I think, I think I remember a time when and trust, um uh, people were withdrawing coffee and tea provided to staff saying, well, it's an expense we cannot justify. And I think it's those kind of, uh, like you said, when in the summer last year, food was being provided and on a very hot day, ice cream vans were, were brought in. And it's a small gesture, but I think uh, the goodwill that it generates and the and the good feeling that it generates is, is, is uh, disproportionately high, I would say. I mean, I could certainly see that in my own Colleagues, you know, they were all so happy that they, that that somebody was thinking about it. I think it's, it's, it's that acknowledgement and it's that validation that we exist and that people, someone is thinking about it. I think um, it's, it's at times like now. I think um, I've, I've seen a message from Chand and the BME yesterday about um, thinking of the international medical graduates who are working for the NHS but have families in India and Brazil and other parts of the world. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's just that connection, reminding people. I just wanted to go back to the point you made at the beginning, um, Sabod, about how there are staff who've they've not only lost patients, but they might have also lost friends and family members. And obviously, it's really nice to have spaces and food, but I wonder whether there's enough psychological support being provided for staff, given what they've been through. So I think it's... Uh, uh, Variable, I think. I think uh, there are some. Uh, I think broadly there is support available. I think that's my first message to people is is to say that there is support available. I think um, what I found um, as I've gone across um, and spoken to various groups of people is that not everyone is aware of what support is is available out there. So, uh, for example, my college, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, runs a support service for psychiatrists and it's free and confidential. I think we are aware of the counselling services the BMA provides and many people are not aware that, that even if you're not a member of the BMA, you can access it. Um, most employers provide a service. Uh, there's There are local areas and I think, again, people, some, I mean, obviously, people who are in my line of work uh, in psychiatry or mental health care are aware that there is primary care-based counselling service available that we all can refer ourselves to. Um, either on the phone or on the web, privately, without even going to your GP. Um, but not everyone um, is aware of that. So I think uh, if, you, if if people Google uh, integrated access to integrated access to psychological therapies (IAPT) and the local area, you should get a, a list of services available locally. And there's obviously NHS practitioners, I think, which is quite a a well-established service in England and Wales. So, so there are lots of services available. And then when you think about trainees, uh, they should have a professional support unit available through the deanery. And each deanery has a, a support unit uh, that caters to a whole range of uh, you know, needs for, for trainees and other learners in, in their organization. So 
my one tip would be to people is to find out what's available locally and and store that on your on your smartphone you, you never know when you or or your colleague or your trainee or someone else might need it so have have that list handy thanks very much and we'll come back to that after this from our sponsor at medical protection we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners and as they work tirelessly to look after others we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our well-being program is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. Our perception is, and you may have a view on this, is that often it's maybe difficult for staff um particularly doctors as a staff group to to ask for help or to admit that they need help and support um so as well as um being aware of the resources i mean how do you know that now is the time to reach out to to one of these services and that your needs are going beyond the usual day-to-day stresses of of practicing as a clinician that, that's such a good question you know i think i think uh, because i think we know that um uh, doctors in particularly, but also more broadly, healthcare workers are less likely to seek help, even when they are clearly in need of that. I think um, there have been lots of studies that have shown that the prevalence of uh, proper diagnosable mental health disorders, so we're talking of, of depression or anxiety or, or more severe mental illnesses like uh, psychosis or bipolar disorder, etc., can... Um, you know, help seeking in those situations can be delayed for for a long, long time, sometimes years. And yet we know that prognosis when doctors do seek help is, is very good. So I think the first thing is, is to is to think about what are the reasons why people don't seek help. Um, the reasons that I've come across and again that have been reported in the literature are the fear of, of being, uh, you know, reported to the GMC. People still have this fear that that um, being ill is somehow equated with being incompetent and that's obviously not true um, uh, maybe there are certain illnesses where you might not be able to work as a result of your illness but that's not always the case um, and I also want to say that GMC has been uh, putting in lots of measures to make sure that they are supportive rather than punitive uh, but I think um, old impressions die hard, and I think sometimes people have this view that that GMC is associated with everything punitive. And I think I just want to kind of remind people that that's not the case. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised um, at the level of support that that GMC and and other organisations do offer. So, um, but again, stigma about you know not wanting to have a mental illness, not wanting to feel that you are in some way not good enough. Um, I think those those attitudes also also prevail, um, and and so I think on a spectrum of what is stress or maybe going up to burnout to what is a treatable 
uh, often a treatable illness like depression or anxiety. And I, I appreciate that not everyone will be able to kind of, you know, we, we don't expect everyone to be psychiatrists and, and make that judgment. But um, my, my, my suggestion would be that at least talking to someone about it would be helpful. Uh, so uh, it, it helps you to, to try and find out is where, where, what is the impact of all, all of that. I think clearly if you are at the milder end of the spectrum, then maybe we need to make some changes to your work style, work-life balance. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but if we are veering into the illness zone, then I think the earlier you seek treatment, the better it is. Some simple pointers in terms of, you know, like you asked, uh, when should you start worrying? I think I think if you are spending a lot of sleepless nights, insomnia is, is, is an early marker usually of illness. And so if you're actually finding it difficult to sleep repeatedly, that's, that's one, uh, one sign to look out for. Um, if the sadness or depression or anxiety is to a level where it's actually affecting your performance at work, that's a red flag. I think you should start worrying about that. Um, I think if you're being very tearful or you find yourself getting very emotional um, and then and, and you find that you, you, you are getting more sensitive to emotional cues and triggers, um, uh, that might be a, a, an orange or a, you know, a yellow flag, kind of worth checking out, see what's happening. Maybe have a chat with the GP if possible. Um, uh, clearly, if, um, if, if you are experiencing any severe mental health symptoms, uh, like uh, having thoughts that life's not worth living or feeling suicidal, or in, in, in situations of psychosis, like experiencing hallucinations or something, then obviously you should seek urgent help because the uh, sooner you seek help, the, the more likely are you to get effective treatment. The final thing, one thing to um, watch out for is is um, alcohol and substance misuse. I think um, uh, we know that uh, uh, medics can be particularly uh, susceptible to substance misuse. Um, the good news is that treatment rates are phenomenally good for doctors. I think when they seek help, it's surprising. I mean, uh, so so again, seeking help early would be helpful. So watch out for what you are what you're drinking or. If you think that level is creeping up, nothing. Certainly, in the pandemic, we did see that for some, that was a way of coping, and then it can creep up easily without. So, so keep an eye out. Mm. So, what I could be completely wrong on this, um, but I've always got the impression that as a specialty, psychiatry is quite good at looking after the mental health of its of its own, and I wonder whether there are any lessons that other specialties other specialties can learn from psychiatry in that respect. Um, that's a good point. I think. I think, yeah, we are probably a bit better at, at being aware of um, what should be done and how should we do it. Um, and so I think um, uh, maybe we are, but I'm not sure we are consistently better. I think uh, because, um, you know, knowing what to do and actually doing it are, are two different things. And I think certainly I've, I've come across many in my profession, again, who have uh, experienced exactly the same issues that I talked about, like stigma and worries about you know, colleagues' perceptions of their their work and worries about, you know, regulators and, and, and so on and so forth. I think um, where I think um, the role called psychiatrist has been helpful is, is in setting up a confidential support service, and that is, is, is quite good. I think um, what I would say to other organizations is that... Um, making sure that the message is simple you know and i think i think normalizing help seeking is probably far more helpful than 
trying to set up a service that very few people know about or or, or is seen to be a, a step or involves multiple steps in accessing it. So I think normalizing conversations within your workspace, within your regular uh, working life is important. So I think what certainly psychiatry we've done, we've been good at is actually normalizing the conversation about our own health, own health and well-being. And now we can see that pretty much in all our all our conferences, this is a, an important element of our our content, conference content. So I think, uh, which I know increasingly I've seen surgeons and last night I was doing a session with BMA in, in the West Midlands and, and, and there was an orthopedic surgeon uh, talking about this. So I think um, uh, increasingly we, I'm sure that uh, health and well-being is reflected in the course content of our conferences across the board. So, so the more we can do that, the more we can have these conversations on the shop floor, the, the better we, we will get at it. And and that's not always easy. Sorry, I'll just make a one quick point, Abby. And and, and uh, that's not always easy. And I think um, I think uh, you know it's easy to approach someone who's had a um, you know fracture of their foot or something like that, and then ask them about their 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 health and well-being. If you see someone looking anxious or depressed, it's not always easy to approach them. But um, that's what we need to learn to do that, right? I mean, it's a skill that we can learn. If, if we feel that that's something stops us from approaching, if we feel awkward at approaching that person, then we need to figure out how do we overcome that awkwardness. Mm. Thanks, Sibyl. That That's a really important point. And you talk about kind of normalizing these conversations and I suppose sort of just integrating them into, into the way we work. But I think some people are concerned that Although the pandemic brought staff well-being into a really sharp focus that, you know, when we're sort of going back into post-pandemic, whenever that actually happens, you know, all the other pressures of the health system, you know, dealing with the elective lists, all of those things, all of the backlog um, may become a lot more dominant and, and staff well-being might drop off the agenda, um, both in terms of organization priorities and financially um do you have any thoughts about how we can help to sustain this i think it's a it's a good point i think it's a, it is a real worry i think um uh, i think um in the covid time was unusual i think um there was national support we had you know people coming out and clapping for the nhs and i think everybody was carried along in that way when there was a real uh, you know, desire to to sh- not only just do something, but to be seen to be doing something as well. Um, but there's a real risk that as as we all start dealing with the massively long wait wait lists and you know other elective uh, work, as you said, that this will fall off the agenda and I will go back to thinking because we we the reality is that that you know we we have uh, funding has always been tight um, and work pressures have always been immense. I think in the NHS we have to recognize that that our most uh, valuable asset is our human resource, and and thinking about how do we value actually value that human resource will generate more value in terms of productivity. I think I think I mean it sounds trite to say that, but you know hundreds of management reports and PhD theses have been written about this topic to show that that is exactly uh, true. Uh, but yet it's easy to forget that simple lesson. So I think 
I, w- I would say that the message from um, the board to, to the ward should be that, well, let's value our colleagues, you know, be kind, be loving and, and demonstrate that. And I think, I think we need to think of concrete ways of demonstrating that and whether it be making adjustments to people's life schedules. I think clearly in the post-pandemic period, one of the key challenges will be how do we go back to a, a more blended way of working? I think we've all uh, learned how to work from home. We've all learned how to be more flexible. And I'm, I'm sure that m- many people wouldn't want to lose that. Some I know are very desperate to come back to work uh, because they've missed the contact. But yet uh, for others, it has been a, a, a positive experience of being having the flexibility. And so I think we need to we need to personalize that experience. Now that requires actual listening to people rather than having protocols for uh, one size fits all kind of approach for for all your all your workers so i feel that if the board has the maxim that that we have to value each and every one of our staff members and and that means that we try and personalize their work life balance i think that's a a good message and i think we we saw that that initially when the risk assessments were coming out uh, especially for uh, uh you know people from uh, ethnic minority staff members, um, there was a sense of using that risk assessment almost like a tick box, you know. And I think over the period of a few months, I hope we've learned that that in fact having a, a conversation with people and personalizing the risk assessment to their individual needs is what works. And so I think we need to take that f- not just in the in the matter of risk assessment, but also in, in their job planning, in their, in their work-life balance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, Subo, when you introduce yourself, you, you sort of describe yourself as a specialist in person-centred care. And I sort of struck me how many of the maxims from person-centred care kind of applies to, you know, person-centred care around staff as well. You know, not, not just so, the patient so as a true, person so in, true. in the centre of their own care, but yeah, no, the staff as an so individual, right. think, um, you know, we share decision-making I guess it's important for us to, to remember that as well. Experience of their own, uh, their own work uh, as well. I think there's a lot I mean, of crossover. Quite often we, we can um, get in the mode of thinking that it's all about someone higher up. But I think each of us at whatever level we are working, you know, I think uh, we have a role to, to translate that. Um, and I certainly feel that... Um, I hope that what we 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 see the big change that I'd like to see is is more of a culture where we ask our you know look after each other you know we we ask about each other and I think I think it's easy to forget that I think it's 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 really very easy to forget that at at, at work you know I think just asking someone how are you are you okay would you like a cup of tea um, do you want to have a chat you know or, or actually even finding ten minutes to sit down and have a cup of coffee. And I think we need to normalize that culture, you know, to, to say that, that it's okay actually to do that. Uh, because that's the, that, that's, the, that's the environment that allows the fostering of those compassionate bonds, you know. Okay, I thought that was a really interesting chat that we had with Subod. I thought we covered a range of topics and I especially liked the point that you brought out at the end around patient-centred care and how perhaps we ought to have healthcare worker-centred workplaces you know change the culture and and ask someone if they need a cup of tea or if they're okay Um, and hopefully that is a change that we'll see as a result of this pandemic. 
Absolutely. And I think um, the point that really resonated with me was when Sibod was talking about international medical graduates and just remembering that that everyone everyone's experience um not just of the pandemic is, is so different and is so personal and everybody's needs are so different whether they've got caring needs at home or you know whether they're also an elite athlete and they have training needs you know we, we're all so different we're all so varied and to expect everyone to sort of fit into the same box and work in the same way when um it might not be the optimum way for them it just doesn't get the best out of people um, and we know that when staff are are engaged and working well they're more productive you know things run more efficiently and things are safer you know we know that's a huge contribution to to patient safety um, and I think this is such a cliche but as Sibyl said it really is a kind of win-win you know investing in in staff well-being does generate better outcomes for patients saves the health system money in terms of staff absence you know we know that there's a huge issue with workforce retention um, and recruitment so you know it's such um it's such a it should be such a priority for the health system going forward and i just really really hope that we see that same focus and emphasis um that we've seen during covid on um creating healthcare workplaces that are healthy for staff um, and meet their personal needs absolutely Kat and I think that's a really nice place to end the podcast so I'll say thank you very much to our guest Sobot Dave for joining us and check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter or you can join the bmj wellbeing group on facebook we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us bye, bye.